I do not know a more sobering passage than Isaiah 53. I'm going to be honest with you, as I studied that this week, the reality of the gospel hit me hard. There was a purpose behind all this. There was a plan. Colonel John Hannibal Smith would say, I love it when a plan comes together. If you've watched the A-Team, you know what I'm talking about. But you know, even in the A-Team, not every plan always went according to plan. In fact, that was rarely the case. Because if everything went according to plan, the show would be boring, predictable. New challenges would come up, things would get in the way, they would have to work around. And let's be honest, that's real life. If you're like me, you'll wake up in the morning and you'll have a plan for your day. But I can't remember once reaching the end of my day and thinking, hey, everything went according to plan. I don't think that's happened once in my life. But you know, God's plans always come together. God's plans always work out exactly as he wants them to, exactly as he predicted. We're continuing our Advent series this morning, The Messiah is Coming, and we're going to focus on the plan for the Messiah. Over the past several weeks, we've looked at the need for the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, the announcement of the Messiah, and now we're going to look at the plan for the Messiah. What's the plan? Why has he come? What's he going to do? How will a holy God redeem sinful man? We pick up our text in Isaiah 53, and if you haven't already, please turn there, and as you do so, I just want to remind you a little bit of the book of Isaiah. We were in Isaiah a couple of weeks ago, but let me just refresh your memory The theme of the book of Isaiah is that God does the work of salvation for his sake. You may even remember the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation, and that's the idea behind the whole book. Isaiah prophesied roughly 740 to 700 BC. He was in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The book of Isaiah can be broken down into two major sections, chapters 1 through 39 which is an indictment against Judah for straying away from God, and chapters 40 through 66, which is on the restoration of Israel that is to come. And when we reach back chapter 53, we're in that second section of Isaiah, but we're also within a subsection that focuses on the servant of the Lord. Within this subsection, there are four passages which have been referred to as the Messianic Servant Songs. Jesus is referred to in those songs as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is the fourth of these servant songs in our text this morning. So I want to share from you, share with you, four aspects of the plan for the Messiah. Four aspects of the plan for the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 53. Would you join me again in verse one? Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Your first point from our text this morning is this. The Messiah would be unimpressive and rejected. The Messiah would be unimpressive and rejected. Now, what do I mean by unimpressive? Simply this. He would not be attractive. He would not be one we naturally think of in terms of a great charismatic leader. He was not impressive. He was average. He would... He was one you would pass in a crowd and not think twice about. And added to that, he was rejected. Let's unpack this a little bit. The verse one says, who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that's a question, two questions actually. And they're prophetic questions. Isaiah 53 is looking ahead. It's looking to the time that the Messiah, that Jesus was here on earth. And it's asking rhetorical questions here. Who has heard? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no one. No one believes. When Jesus was here, no one believed. Now, you might stop and think, well, what about the disciples? What about the crowd that would often follow Jesus? Well, even then, you have to remember that the disciples were always struggling with unbelief. And the crowd was coming and going, and a lot of times just there because of the miracles. Who has believed? By and large, his message went unheeded. This verse, interestingly enough, is actually quoted in John chapter 12, referring to those who would refuse to believe Jesus. He says in that same verse, the arm of the Lord, that's a figure of speech that refers to his power in action. See, there was great power in Jesus' first advent. The first time he came, there was great power. We can't explain it. We can't wrap our minds around a holy God taking on human flesh, much less the flesh of a baby. There is great power in that. But no one paid attention. He came almost like a whisper in the night but there was one that watched over him. There was one that always watched over him. Look at verse two. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. God was watching. God was watching his son. The pronouns there might be a bit confusing, but what it's saying is this. For he, Jesus, grew up before him, the father. God, like a proud father, closely watched his son. God saw and ordained every moment in Jesus' life. Verse two goes on to say, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Again, this idea that Jesus was unattractive, he was unimpressive, he did not stand out in a crowd. No one looked at him from his appearance and thought to themselves, hey, there's someone I wanna follow. Jesus' influence had nothing to do with desirable human qualities, what we think of today, good looks, compelling personality. He didn't have 
a New York Times bestseller. He wasn't impressive. He had none of that. And to add insult to injury, look at verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was rejected. He was not believed. He knew pain and suffering. And I think immediately we think to the cross when we think of the pain and suffering of Jesus. And that's true, certainly. But this also refers to the inward suffering. The inward suffering due to rejection. You understand that, and I understand that. To be rejected hurts. But Jesus' hurt was deeper because he was rejected by his very own people. He was rejected by the people he loved. He was rejected by the people he grieved over. His pain, his sorrow, his suffering went deep. The verse goes on to say, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Like one might hide their face from a leper is the reaction that people had toward Jesus. That was the level at which he was rejected. Essentially, people wanted nothing to do with him. Oh, they loved his miracles, but they didn't always love his message. This idea of being rejected is reflected in Jesus' hometown in Matthew 13. Follow along on the screen. It reads, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. And that response encapsulates this idea of rejection. By and large, Jesus was rejected by his own people. That word esteem There in verse three, it means to respect, to hold in high regard. And that was not the case, not with Jesus. He was not esteemed. And it's crazy to think about, but that was all part of the plan. That was all part of the plan. It was God's plan that Jesus be rejected. Why? because the plan led to the cross. And the cross couldn't happen if everyone accepted him. So this was all part of the plan. He was to be rejected. You know, from the outside looking in, when we're rejected or we see somebody rejected, that does not appear like to be part of the plan, but with Jesus, that was exactly part of the plan. This was all under control by God in his divine Sovereignty. He even prophesied this in Isaiah 6.10. It's on the screen. You can follow along with me. Isaiah 6.10. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and be turned and be healed. It was all part of the plan. Jesus would be rejected. Now we read a passage like this and you think, how should we respond What does this say to us today? Let me say this to that. If humanity failed to esteem him then, let me encourage you to esteem him now. If humanity failed to esteem him when he walked the earth, 
then brothers and sisters, let's esteem him now. If esteem is to respect, to regard highly, then do that. If you call Jesus Lord, esteem him, respect him, hold him in high regard, hold him in the highest regard. How do we do that? How do I do that practically? Listen to him. Believe his word. John 6, 29 says, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Believing in him is the way that we esteem him. Believe. Believe your savior. The essence of belief starts on the inside, absolutely, but you see, it has to work its way out. True belief has to work its way out and change our behavior you can't change how you act. You can't, you can't help but change how you act when you truly believe something. I would take a bet that everyone in this room believes that crossing the street is dangerous. And you prove that by looking both ways. If you did not look both ways, that would suggest you don't think crossing the street is dangerous. Our belief does something to our behavior. So harvest, in what ways... Are you failing to believe your Savior? What does the Bible say that you are failing to act upon? Let me challenge you to ask the Lord this week, in what ways am I failing to act on your word because of unbelief? The plan for the Messiah. The Messiah would be unoppressive and rejected. Here's your second point. Another part of the plan was this. The Messiah would bear our hurts and sins. The Messiah would bear our hurts and sins. Join me in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Messiah would bear our hurts and sins. Jesus would bear the consequences of our sins. That is, he would bear the effects of our sins. The effects of our sins are the griefs and sorrows mentioned in verse four. Sin produces pain. You know that. Sin produces pain. Jesus would not just bear our sin. He would, absolutely. He would bear all of our wrongdoing, all of our offenses against him, absolutely. But you see, he would bear more than that. He would bear the consequences. He would bear the brokenness. He would bear the effects of sin. He bears all of it. And yet the latter part of verse four says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. It's the same word, esteem here, but it's used in a different way. It's used like the word regarded. We regarded him as stricken. We regarded him as smitten by God. See, the Jews judged Jesus because they thought he was blasphemous. When he went to the cross, they figured he was dying by the judgment of God for a sin of blasphemy. That's why it says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. 
That's the way it was regarded by the Jews in his time. That's the way it was regarded by those who nailed him to the cross, that he was being blasphemous, so God has smitten him. But verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He wasn't smitten by God because of his own sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced. He was wounded. He was broken. He was crushed. It was the weight of our sin that fell on his shoulders. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That word chastisement means discipline. He was punished. He was disciplined in our place. It's the idea of a substitute. We sinned. Sin required punishment. Christ was the substitute who stood in our place. And because of that, we have peace. Because of his wounds, we are healed. Healed here means restoring to normal. It does refer to healing from sickness, yes, but also healing as in restoration. In 2 Kings 2.22, Elisha the prophet heals the bad water of the city of Jericho. It's returning something back to normal. See, by his wounds, we are healed. We are brought back to normal. Normal meaning the place of peace with God like we had before the fall. We are healed in that sense. Verse six says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah uses the picture of sheep to describe all of us who wander. Sheep stray is what they do. That's why they need shepherds. How have we strayed? The verse tells us, by turning each one to his own way. Since Genesis 3, we have failed to be obedient and instead turned our own way, turned to our way of doing life. We have followed our path. Romans 8, 6 through 8 reads, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We have all gone our own way. When I was in college, I worked for a short time at a Christian bookstore. And one evening, it was just myself and the manager. And he had to step out and run a few errands before closing. And he just told me, watch the counter. I'll go run my errands and then I'll return and we'll do closing routine. Well, I decided to do my own way. I decided to get a, hard, a head start on the closing routine while my boss was away, and when he got back, that would impress him. The thing is, he walked in the door while I was vacuuming, and while I was vacuuming, the phone was ringing, and I couldn't hear that because of the vacuuming, and he wasn't happy. I didn't follow the plan. I did things my own way. On a greater scale, that's us and God. All we like sheep 
have gone astray. We've done our own thing. We failed to follow the great shepherd. We have chosen to believe the lie of Satan rather than the truth of God. In response to our waywardness, Jesus shouldered our iniquity. Now, iniquity here is an offense. It's intentional or not intentional. It can be either way. It's an offense against God's law. We offended God. We broke his law, and yet God treated Jesus as if he were the guilty party. Now, if he took your sin, if he took your grief, if he took your sorrow, if he takes all of it, then my challenge to you is this. Let him heal you. He bears our hurt. He bears our sins. He forgives sin. And he heals hurt. Let him heal you. Now, I'm not talking about physical healing here. Yes, I believe Jesus can do that. I believe he can step in and do a miracle. I believe he can take a sick, broken body and make it whole. I believe that, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is the work of healing from the effects of sin. It starts at salvation. When a person turns to the gospel, Jesus heals them in the sense of forgiving them and establishing a right relationship with them. So we've been healed in that sense, yes. But you see, there is still a lot of healing to do in our lives because sin has messed us up so much. We still sin. We still feel the effects of sin. And the miraculous thing is, Jesus, who took the effects of our sin, offers healing. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a lifelong process. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work and change our lives to redeem us, to heal us. Let me ask you, are you the same person you were five years ago, 10 years ago? If you're walking with Christ, I hope your answer to that is no. Why is that? Because all along the way, Christ is healing the effects of sin in your life. The pain, the addictions, the emotional and mental brokenness in our life sometimes caused by our sinful choices, sometimes caused by the sinful choices of someone else, sometimes a mixture of the two, sometimes just because we live in a broken world, but nonetheless, they can be healed. This is the work of the gospel. He who bore your hurts offers you healing, and like I said, it won't happen all at once. As we learn to rely more and more on Jesus, we are healed more and more from the deep scars left by the effects of sin. And you might ask, how do I do this? How do I receive this healing? Turn to the gospel. Say to yourself, because Jesus bore my consequences, my griefs, my sorrows, he can heal my You fill in the blank. Your pain, your fears, your hurts. Because he bore all the effects of my sin, he can heal those effects. It was all part of the plan. The Messiah would bear our hurts and sins. Thirdly, the Messiah would be mistreated yet innocent. The Messiah would be mistreated Yet innocent. We're looking at four aspects of the plan for the Messiah, 
he would be mistreated and innocent. Look at verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus, you might remember, throughout his life was oppressed by the religious leaders of the day. They were constantly badgering him. They were constantly trying to get him to slip up. They wanted to catch him in a lie or use his words against him. And then at his arrest and his trial, he was falsely accused, he was beaten, and yet he made no reply. That's Isaiah 53.7. The verse, Isaiah 53.7, uses the analogy of a sheep, just like in verse 6, but this time, the sheep is a submissive participant instead of a wandering away on its own. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, was silent before his accusers like a lamb led to the slaughter. The idea of slaughter here conveys that the sheep we're talking about are the ones meant for sacrifices. They just went along, completely compliant. And the image of the sheep before its shears, again, that communicates Jesus' compliance with those who oppressed and afflicted him. He didn't object. He went willingly. Verse 8 reads, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? This is the manner in which Jesus was taken to the cross. He was wrongly condemned. And if you stop and think about it, Jesus was condemned for telling the truth. He claimed to be God. That was true. And they killed him for it. The text says, who considered this? Who considered what was happening at the cross, in other words? Who considered the implication that he was cut off from the land of the living, that he was being killed for the sake of the people who were killing him? Who considered this? It's another rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. No one considered the implication of the cross. No one considered the significance of what Jesus was doing. And no one came to his defense No one came to support him. His trial was completely illegal. And no Pharisee, no scribe, no rabbi, no priest, not even a disciple stood up for him. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were so bent on putting him to death, they never stopped and considered, what does this mean? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. If you know the story, you know that Jesus died along with thieves, with wicked men. Criminals who were executed during the New Testament times were given no respectable burial. Those who were crucified would be left on the cross long after they were dead and their bodies would be ravaged by scavenging beasts Eventually, however, the rotting corpse would be taken down and literally tossed into the city dump. It was just added shame. In that culture at that time, how you were buried said a lot about your status. 
Verse 9 implies then that this would have been Jesus' fates. In fact, the NASB translates it this way, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He would have been treated like any other criminal, but then verse 9 also says, with a rich man in his death. Now that's a cryptic phrase there. If you were reading this in the Old Testament times, you wouldn't understand what that meant. We get to our side of the cross after reading through the events that transpire in the New Testament and we see that this is prophetic. This verse is prophetic about the burial of Jesus Christ. The rich man here is Joseph of Arimathea. He it was who owned the tomb and it's said of him in Matthew 27 that he was a rich man who asked Pilate for the body of Jesus and buried him in his own tomb. It was prophetic of Jesus' burial. Jesus would not be left to shame after he died. And that's what Isaiah 53.9 is hinting at. And I love this. I love evidence that validates the Bible. I enjoy apologetics. This verse was written some 700 years before it happened. It's really hard to argue against that. You can't orchestrate your own burial like this. I know that we make plans for our own burial, absolutely, but you can't make plans to this degree. You can't orchestrate events 700 years beforehand that lead to your burial. It's strong evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. He is God. And according to the verse, completely innocent. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was completely innocent innocent of the crimes that he was accused of, but beyond that, innocent of any sin. He was sinless. So what do I do with these verses here? Well, though Christ went undefended to the cross, we can defend him today. He went undefended to the cross Humanity failed to stand up for him then, but we can stand up for him today. Do you stand up for the truth of who Jesus is? What humanity failed to do, do you do? Do you defend your Savior? You know, God has given you a family, immediate and extended. God has given you a neighborhood. God has given you coworkers. God has given you an influence on social media. How are you defending him in your sphere of influence? We can defend him today. The Messiah would be mistreated yet innocent. Here's our last point. Four aspects of the plan for the Messiah. Your final point. The Messiah would be crushed yet victorious. The Messiah would be crushed yet victorious. Follow along as I read verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. Verse 10 tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord. That is, the pleasure, the desire, the delight. That's what the will of the Lord is here. He desired to crush the Son. The Lord, Yahweh, has put Jesus to grief. It was God's will to do this. It was God's desire. It was his plan to crush the Son. Although Jesus was oppressed and afflicted by religious leaders of the day, there was an underlying divine purpose driving this whole thing. The sovereign providence of Almighty God planned all of this to happen. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. You might notice verse 10 is bracketed by the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord, his desire to crush him. See, Jesus, the verse tells us, by offering himself, by submitting and being the sacrificial lamb, is then rewarded. See, the guilt offering recorded in Leviticus chapters 5, 6, and 7 was meant to restore the relationship between sinners and God. They would offer a ram, and it was the guilt offering. There were several different kinds of offerings, and the ram, the guilt offering was a ram offered to restore the relationship between sinners and God. Jesus is the Christian's guilt offering. He was the truer and better offering, making restitution between sinful man and holy God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's all part of the plan. But it did not end in death. The verse says, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his offspring. I believe the best interpretation of that is Jesus will see future followers like you and me. Yahweh will prolong Jesus' days. This does not end in death. He shall prosper. He shall go on. Even though the word resurrection is not here, it is strongly implied. This would not be the end of, this would not end in death. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, but it was the will of the Lord to make him prosper. You can't see your offspring. You can't prosper if you're dead. Jesus would not stay dead. He would go on to reign with God. And then verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. From his suffering, from his anguish, Satisfaction comes because he did his work. Mission accomplished. And he goes on to make many righteous. Jesus knew that this was part of the plan. He was not caught off guard by this. He kept telling the disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. 
and they didn't understand. And his work made it possible for many to be accounted righteous. He would bear their iniquities and they would receive his righteousness. And then verse 12 ends like this. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The image here in verse 12 is of a conqueror taking a city and plundering the goods. Jesus was rewarded for his sacrifice. He is no longer despised and rejected. He is now victorious and rewarded and he will share his reward with those whom he makes righteous. That's you and me. We share in his rewards. Think about it. It's the most unfair trade imaginable. We give him our sins. We give him our mess. We give him our grief. We give him our hurts and he takes them and he heals us and he makes us righteous and he shares his reward with us. That's your savior. And as if all that weren't enough, he does more. He makes intercession. To intercede is to mediate. Jesus stands in the place between God and man, mediating on our behalf. That's what he's doing right now. This is Jesus' high priestly work. And interestingly enough, it started on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do but it continues even to today. Hebrews 7.25 read, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He heals. He makes righteous. He shares his reward. He intercedes. This is what Jesus offers. This is the Christmas present to beat all Christmas presents. And if you're here this morning and you've never received this amazing gift, won't you do it today? Won't you choose to turn away from sin and believe in Jesus today? He's the ultimate Christmas gift. Won't you receive him today? Won't you come and talk to me Afterwards, about this amazing gift, I would love to share more. My dear Christians, when you're opening your gifts this Christmas, enjoy them, for sure. But let them remind you of all you've been given in Christ. Be overwhelmed by his generosity. Be overwhelmed by his sacrifice. No one gives like Jesus. Isaiah 53 is the plan. This is what the Messiah was prophesied to do, and that's exactly what he did. The plan came together. He was unimpressive and rejected. He bore our hurts and sins. He was oppressed yet innocent. He was crushed yet victorious. The plan came together. This Christmas, saturate your hearts with those truths. 
I know this is an Advent series. This is, this is a Christmas series. Why the heavy message? Because it was a heavy plan. The baby in the manger became a curse for our sin, became the victor over sin and death. That was the plan, and it all came together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. You bore it all. You took it all upon yourself. That was the plan. And I admit I am overwhelmed by your love, your sacrifice, and your willingness to follow this plan. Where else could we find such a love? Reach down deep within us. Give us the truth of what you did. Overwhelm us by your deeds and change us. May we see your love. May we grow in love. May we see your sacrifice and grow in sacrificing ourselves. May we see you bear our griefs and grow in bearing one another's burdens. Let this Christmas influence us for the gospel like never before. Change us, O Savior, because of who you are and because of what you did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.